namo bhutasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa namo bhutasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa namo bhutasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa buddhang dhammang sangkang namasa Well, first I'd like to say how lovely it is to be back again at Hanum and see everybody all bright and shiny. Some people looking a little bit red from this unusual period of sunny weather. And also, uh, those of you that don't remember Ajahn Sawang or haven't met Ajahn Sawang, he, uh, he went to Thailand in, I think it was December last year, uh, to visit family and to see his teacher back in Thailand and we're very, very happy to have him back again with us. And also uh, to introduce you to Arnie here, who I'm visiting from, uh, from Amaravati, uh, originally from Sweden. So we, we stick with the S's here, Slovenia, Serbia, Sweden, South Africa, uh, Slovakia, Slovakia, uh, Anyway, so the other thing that's been on my mind uh, is traveling around, which is what I've been doing. And it's always interesting. I, I, one of the things I love about being in this part of the world is uh, the access one has to so many different countries and cultures. And I'm very pleased to live here, and, uh, and it's always um, a joy to visit other communities and friends on the continent and so what I've been doing in the last few weeks is just that staying with various friends and in France for a week and in Italy for a week and then Slovenia and back then to Amrawati for a while and London one of the things that pretty that's pretty constant actually is as well as the joy and the pleasure of, of course seeing friends and and spending time in their company and uh, Life is also, it's always, there's always an element of frustration there. No matter how good things can be, there tends to always be something that's frustrating going on. And, and, uh, and I used to think this was just me, you know, until I came across Buddhism. And then the Buddha said, life is frustrating. But there's a cause for the frustration, and there's an end to the frustration, and there's a path that leads to the end of the frustration. And so I find when I travel, I'm often called to, you know, to you know, really remind myself that this is being mindful of frustration is my practice. It's so easy when things get frustrating to become critical or judgmental or blaming. Very easy. You've got if you have a mind like mine, it's just like it just loves criticizing. I just my critical faculties are really well developed. I got I don't know three or four planets in Virgo, and I, I'm just I just love to criticize everything, especially myself. But it's not fun, as probably most of you realize. You know, having a critical mind is is not a pleasant experience. And but we can't just stop it as an act of will. We need to get more subtle than that. But if we don't stop it, well, you can, it's very easy to get very bitter about life. 
Because as I said, you know, I'm sure I'm not alone. That, that life is frustrating. and There's <clears throat> things going on all the time. Somebody was here visiting today, uh, a young couple that I know, and he's, he's a local lad, and she's Asian. Very well-educated woman and uh, doing professional work and, and uh, really likes, generally likes living in the Northeast. However, she says she is not really subjected to racial abuse. You know, people you know, verbally, I mean, really, because she's Asian and young, attractive woman, and seen with this uh, white guy that people say really insulting, sexist, um, racist comments to her. And, and so we were talking about that for a while because I don't get sexist, racist, racial abuse, but I do get my own share of of um, people being unpleasant and we were talking about whether you know whether it was just the northeast and whether people in that part of the northeast were a bit more primitive than than other parts of the northeast and I, I do think that the northeast from what I know from what I've heard has got a bit of work to do in this area still and uh, but I do think it's improved I know 10 or 15 years ago I, I used to hear more comments of things that went on in Newcastle than do these days and but I, I still get my share. The other day I was uh, at the airport, I think on Thursday, I went to pick up a friend who was coming in and there was a big busload of, of football supporters. And of course, you know, because there's a little sunshine, they all got their gear off, you know, with the light. They're, gonna, they're <laughs> picking up the sun, and covered in tattoos. And, and then I turn up and I go, hey, Harry Krishna, Harry, hey, hey. And, uh, well, you know, little Harry Krishna is okay. They used to call me Harry Khrushchev because I don't think they quite, couldn't quite pronounce the Krishna bit. <laughs> this was a few years ago in Newcastle. Hey, Harry Khrushchev. <laughs> so this was, you know. And um, there was a time when I used to feel quite upset about that. I, I, I mean, it's not because, you know, I got a thing against the Harry Krishnas. It's just, you know. I just, it was just the tone, and, and it wasn't just Hare Krishna, there were a few other words as well, usually, kind of thrown in. And, but I noticed this time, I, I really didn't mind, actually. It was, it was oh, well, it's just the lads, you know, I don't know whether they're going off somewhere or coming from somewhere. And actually, I, I do, sometimes these days, I, if people come out with that, I just walk right up to them and kind of just look at them. You know, and just look at them. And they tend to, you know, get something back. And, I'm not sure it's always wise. I, <laughs> I was told that um, I should be careful because uh, on an aeroplane recently I, I was going to Switzerland and the, uh, there were some Sunderland supporters. And I don't mind that this talk is being broadcast on the internet because Sunderland needs to reflect on their supporters. Uh, they were going to play a game, I think it was against Geneva. And my goodness, the language of these guys... I've heard, I've heard about English supporters, but I actually hadn't heard English supporters. Well, on this plane, I heard uh, Sunderland supporters, and the way they addressed the air hostesses, and I, it was, it was embarrassing. I mean, I, I'm, I, I, you know, I'm familiar with a little ripe speech, but uh, you know, time and place, you, you don't talk like that in public. I wasn't feeling very comfortable about it, but on the other hand, I also didn't get so upset. Like I mean, in the past, I used to get very indignant about it. And, Interestingly, when we were about to get off the plane, they noticed me, and we were delayed getting off. We had to all get off the front because there weren't ladders for the back or something like that. You know, they started, you know, ooh, ooh, look at him, ooh. and then one of them came over and started pulling on my robe. And I thought, oh, here we go. 
And he's, he says, uh, oh, me mate, he says, I should get you to pray for our team. And so I turned to him and I looked at him and I said, who are you playing? He said, we're Sunderland, we're playing Geneva. I said, well, I support Newcastle and I'm not praying for you. <laughs> and um, I was told anyway, that wasn't a very clever thing to say. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but the, the point was actually I felt strong enough to say it. And, uh, you know, I didn't lose my centre, you see. I mean, this is the point. This is what I'm trying to make, that <clears throat> when we, if we get abused, if we get whether it's, you know, I mean, of course, there's, there is terrible physical abuse, which um, is another matter. But verbal abuse, um, as awful as it can be, and there is definitely a time and place for dealing with it socially and politically. But spiritually, from a spiritual perspective, how do we deal with, that level of frustration, that sort of uh, suffering when we get physically, verbally abused. If we haven't really, uh, if we haven't really got a good handle on the dynamic of what's really going on, then what happens is we tend to, don't we? We tend to blame them. You know, and there's those Sunderland supporters or all like that. Well, you know, the other day I watched the movie. I was staying and I watched the movie Downfall. And I don't know if those of you have seen it, but I think it's a very good movie to see. It's all about the last 20 days or something of uh, the Nazis. And a very, very well-made movie and definitely worth seeing. It's, it's good that the movie got made. And, and, but if you're, if you're not really in touch with what's going on inside you, because it's quite painful to watch, you can, you can distance the, the hatred that you have. It's just somehow the hatred belongs to the Nazis. But the hatred doesn't belong to the Nazis. It doesn't belong to the football hooligans. The hatred doesn't belong to anything out there. The hatred is something that's happening in here. And this is the case with all frustration. Now, I'm not not in any way justifying abuse, verbal abuse or whatever. I mean, it needs to be dealt with. But from a spiritual perspective, how do we deal with that from our our portion? How do we deal with it? Well, I think the basic... uh, principle is that we need to we need to take on board that we have our domain responsibility yes it's inappropriate uh, legally socially uh, morally it's inappropriate when people behave in certain ways but to just let our minds go into blaming and condemning which is also what happens when the hurt is not when we can't handle our hurt we put it out that's basically what we do when we can't we're not familiar enough with our own hatred, our own anger, our own hurt. We can't handle it, so we put it out. And uh, so, to take that on board, I think, is the, is the first step. And then, and then to be willing and interested, to be willing and interested to really work with it. So that when it comes up, for instance, if somebody says something and you don't handle it very well at the time, and you go back, and then at the end of the day, you're sitting there and it's still going on in your mind. You know, what they said. Well, instead of just going on to thinking about how awful they are and what peasants they are and how primitive their behavior was and whatever, we can, if we're interested, turn our attention around and say, well, this frustration, this pain, this hurt, this suffering is actually happening right now. It's not happening six hours ago. It's happening right now. Now, who's doing this? Who is doing this suffering? Who is doing it? I'm doing it. I am actually 100% responsible for this right now. Yes, they're responsible for what they said, but I'm responsible for this. 
and not to take this on in some sort of heavy, you know, I've got to be responsible for my life or anything, but just from interest, from an interest perspective, uh, to look into it. And this is something we can do in formal practice, and we should, we need to do it in formal practice, but also in daily life, in everyday situations that we're in. Or one of the things I did was, while I was away, I went to a, uh, a conference festival in uh, Padua, in Italy. And Ajahn Chandapalo told me that most of the talks would be given in English and translated into Italian. And it turned out that the talks were given in Sri Lankan, Tibetan and Japanese, and they were all translated into Italian. <laughs> so it was fascinating. Several hours sat there, just, you know, just kind of looking at what was going on. And, and then after a while I got bored, and so I asked Ajahn Chandapada to translate uh, what was happening. And, and Well, it wasn't that I just got bored. I also was interested. They had this, particularly had this question and answer session. And all the different traditions that were there. You know, there was the Tibetans... Uh, Rinpoche, something rather, and all these Western monks there, Irish and German and Italian and Israeli Westerners there training in this Tibetan tradition and, the, and then um, Japanese and Italian Japanese and, and then us lot, us, us uh, European Theravadans and, and then there's Korean Zen and Vietnamese Zen and everybody. It was a fascinating situation. And so I, I was interested in what was going on and and just watching the dynamic, like at one stage, there was the Sri Lankan monk was doing it before his Dhamma talk, not more, Tassava. And then these Italian ladies came running along serving drinks. Right in, you know, like, right, we were in the front row because we were the guests of honor. And here there's all this bunch of Italian ladies going along serving drinks, pouring drinks. We were supposed to be having our hands in onions. Well, I thought we were. I mean, that's what you normally do, don't you? Somebody's giving Dhamma talk. Well, in Italy, it's different. They serve drinks. And, and then, halfway through this guy's talk, another monk here, his mobile phone went off. He didn't just get embarrassed like I would and say, oh, sorry, guys. <laughs> he opened it and started talking <laughs> in the middle of the Dhamma talk, just sitting there, yabbering away, right in the front row, and there's this monk sitting in front just giving a Dhamma talk. Fascinating. And then another monk, this lovely lassie came along to see him, got down, beautiful, lovely blonde lady, and he starts stroking her hair. This monk, so she's stroking her hair and kind of fondling her blonde hair while he's chatting to her, and I thought, well, that's different. <laughs> and all of these things were going on, and I, you know, this is without understanding anything, but just watching. And, and also watching here, because I'm not used to this. You know, in England, Theravadans, we don't do things like that. We, we don't stroke ladies' blonde hair, and we don't answer our phones, and we don't whatever else. So, you know, <clears throat> we're very contained and well-behaved, and... So this was different from what I was used to. And initially, I must say, there was a little sort of, you know, all these Italians, they clean up their act a bit. I mean, they got rid of Berlusconi, they couldn't do a few other things. So my mind was going along those lines. And, um, but then I started to notice that I was actually feeling quite unpleased to be there. I didn't want to be there. It was, it was, it was uh, uncomfortable, frustrating, irritating. Couldn't understand it. All these weird behavior going on. Well, I thought, well, you know, do I have to? I mean, I actually didn't go through a thought process. It was more like the way practice actually went was that something within me realized that there's no point in doing that. It's not helpful to me or to them or to anybody else. It's just, it just makes me miserable. And really, this is a rather lovely situation, all these different traditions together. 
lovely Padua, a nice part of, of Italy, and good occasion, Buddha's birthday celebration, and for all of Italy, all the Buddhist traditions of Italy get together once a year and do this thing. And here I am, you know, feeling a little grumpy about it all. Well, it stopped. <clears throat> it stopped very quickly, actually. I, I, something within me recognized I don't have to do that. I don't have to object to what's going on. I mean, it would be different if there was some serious behavior going on. It wouldn't be so easy. But we don't have to wait for terrible situations to reflect on how we deal with frustration. Something like that. Sitting at a meeting, we don't understand what's going on, with something unfamiliar happening. What do we add to it? What do we add to it that creates unpleasantness? And when I let go of whatever it was, it became a very pleasant occasion. I loved it. I sat there and said, oh, I'm going to come next year. I'll ask Ajahn Chandapada if I can come again. I loved it, actually. I didn't have any duties, didn't have to do any talking or anything. and just sat there, and then they fed me, which was nice as well. And then the question and answer session was also interesting. And, and afterwards, when listening to some of the other people who, had, who were Italian speakers and who could hear what was going on, and hearing their reactions, because... Of course, these different traditions have different perspectives. The Theravadans and the Vajrayanas and the Mahayanas, they, you know, people have got different perspectives on things. And if you're not careful, uh, even, you know, even the Buddhist teachings we can turn into a problem. And there were some people afterwards talking in a way that it was quite clear they had a problem with it. One of the questions was, um, Buddhism says that you should work on yourself or sort yourself out or something or other, something along those lines. You should. And so what do, you, what do the speakers think of it? And so these different monks gave their different perspectives. And the Japanese monk, his perspective was, well, there is no self anyway. Just surrender yourself to the situation and let Dhamma do what it does. And then... Uh, and then I forget what the Tibetan monk said. And the Theravada monk... He says that you have to take practice very seriously and work on yourself and, and train yourself and discipline yourself and give yourself into this uh, teaching of the Buddha very seriously and, and then you receive the benefits. Now, to some people, quite clearly, listening to their comments, these were very different perspectives yeah. and these were, this produced a problem for them. And so who's right and who's wrong? And people would take sides. So if, when we're in a situation like that, and we feel there's a, an apparent conflict or contradiction, if we immediately judge it as being wrong, which we can do when we don't, we don't like conflict, can't stand conflict, so we've just got to find who's right and who's wrong, and I'll take sides with the right one. You know, then it's the end of the conflict. It's not the end of the conflict. You know, all we've done is actually alienated ourselves from those that we've decided is wrong. And this is true in all the situations we find ourselves in when there, where there is this right and wrong. We don't have to take sides. With the commitment to awareness, and this is what our refuge is, we say, I go for refuge to the Buddha. I go for refuge to that limitless awareness, to that awareness that is so perfectly well established that it can be unshaken by anything. That's my refuge. That's what I trust is possible for human beings to do. That's what the Buddha realized. And when I go for refuge to that, 
That means that I, I don't have to take sides with right and wrong, good or bad. I can listen to different perspectives on things. I can listen to what the Japanese monk says and says there's no self. From one perspective, that's true. You know, when you watch your mind and you can see all these cells coming along, there's I am happy, then the next thing I am sad, and the next thing is I am bored, and the next thing is I want to stay, and the next thing is I want to go. Which is the real I? Yeah. Is there any real I? You ask yourself, who am I? And you keep asking that question, can you find anything? You can't find anything. And the Buddha certainly, his, he looked a lot deeper and longer and clearer than we did, and he couldn't find anything. And he did say there's no I, there's no self, anatta. So the Japanese monk was right. But what about the Vietnamese, uh, Sri Lankan monk? You know, he said you've got to train yourself seriously. You've got to take these Buddhist teachings and apply them and you know, do these teachings and... From a relative perspective, actually, there is a self. You know, I definitely feel like I'm here. And if you, you know, say something, you know, really lovely to me, I will feel good. Erika won't feel anything. Well, he might feel jealous. You know, so. I wish I was up there giving the Dhamma talk. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or so you say something unkind or insulting. You know, when I when I'm at the airport, and, and it seems to happen at the airport more than once, actually. So. Sometimes the, the loaders, and when I mean, you get off the plane, they have something to say about things. They're yelling at me. They're not yelling at this person next to me. And I feel something. So who is this I? And you can't just say, there is no I. There is an I. There is a self. But then there is also not a self. Now, that's sort of... I, I've heard many people get into arguments and, and frustration and confusion over whether there's a self or not a self. In fact, when I was living at uh, in what Wapapong with Ajahn Chah, um, then she was called Pat Stoll. Later she was ordained as a nun and became Sister Rochana. And she was asking Ajahn Chah, you know, the Buddha said there is no self, anatta, but if there's no self, how can I concentrate on an object, a meditation, if I'm not here, if there's no me, if there's no self, there's no I? And Ajahn Chah said, oh, very good question. It's a very good question. When you're practicing samatha, or concentration, there is a self. There's got to be a self. When you're practicing vipassana, in reflection on the impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self nature of everything, then you realize not-self. But then when you really understand practice, you're beyond self and not-self. It doesn't have to be a problem. There's only a problem when we allow our attention to fall short of that awareness to which we're committed. When we allow our attention to fall short of that, we, we fix onto an object. We fix onto a position. So who's right and who's wrong? And I want to be on, on the right side. And so any situation we find ourselves in where we're experiencing you know, frustration, the, the cause of the frustration has got to be taking a fixed position. Yes, there's a social cause. Yes, there's a trigger. Yes, there's the outer stimulus. But the real cause, what is the real cause of the frustration? Yeah. It's got to do with what I want and not getting it. Yeah. And, and it's not even, because sometimes people say, well, wanting is the problem. Wanting is the problem. I shouldn't want anything. Well, can you stop wanting? I can't stop wanting. I've tried. You know, I can't stop wanting. And do you think the Buddha didn't have any desires? 
what, what, is, what is compassion? What is the Buddha's motivation to help people if it's not a desire to help beings be free from suffering? You know, when the Buddha was first enlightened, initially he wasn't motivated to go out and spread any teachings. But that was just because he realized how subtle they were and actually when he looked at the way normal people live, he realized that most people are so, so clouded in delusion and what they're doing is creating suffering for themselves all the time thinking that they're making themselves happy. And he thought, well, people who are this thick obviously not going to understand something this subtle. So he wasn't very motivated. But then, thankfully, he changed his mind and um, realized that there was a benefit in teaching and he taught the Four Noble Truths and was motivated by this wish to share the teachings, to share the understanding, the wish for beings to be free from suffering. So desire is not the problem. What is the problem? What is the problem? What is the cause of frustration? Well, it's got to be with how we, how we relate to wanting. Wanting people to be happier, wanting people to be harmonious, wanting people to understand, wanting myself to be a certain way. All of these things can be perfectly wholesome, can't they? Perfectly suitable. Wanting to improve myself can be perfectly suitable. But how I want is what matters. Because if, if I want to be happy or I want to improve and I make an effort but I don't succeed, then what's the result? Disappointment. Does it have to be disappointment? Do we have to get disappointed? Or with somebody else, you know, if you see somebody who is suffering and you really want them to not suffer and you really make an effort to be with them as a person, not just to understand them with some intellectual idea, but to be with this person who is clearly suffering and you want them to be free from suffering, you feel their suffering with them and you make an effort to support them to be free from suffering, but they're not free from suffering. Do we have to suffer? Do we have to feel frustration? Yes, we can feel disappointed, but that doesn't have to become frustrating. It depends on, well, what does it depend on? This is is the contemplation. What does it depend on? What makes the difference? It seems to me that what makes the difference is how we perceive our desires how we perceive wanting. Wanting people to be harmonious and they're not harmonious, do we have to suffer? Well, from the Buddhist perspective, no. But what makes a difference is not just philosophizing or idealizing about it or even thinking about it. What makes a difference is being terribly interested in the cause of of frustration or the cause of suffering. Really interested. To be fed up with blaming and criticizing and judging, and to be interested in the possibility, is it, is it an actual realistic possibility that we can live with disagreeable circumstances and not suffer? The Buddha said it was possible. You know, he didn't just live in a nice situation all the time. He didn't live in a wonderful environment with lovely people around him and have everything all the time, all the way he wanted all the time. You know, there were times when didn't have any food, although he he could have gone out and lived like a prince, he didn't, he lived like a beggar. And there were times when he just 
lived off leftover horse food and he lived in monasteries where people tried to kill him and abuse him and not just verbally but physically you know. had physical suffering uh, had arthritis when he got old and stories about the Buddha sitting there sunning his back in the morning to relieve the pain of arthritis and so he had plenty of triggers for frustration but he made it quite clear there was no suffering for him absolutely no suffering so what's the difference no. Not to answer that question intellectually, but to see if we can get interested in that question. Say, so what's the difference? Or, you know, what, what is it that the Buddha knew that I don't know? Because when I'm in these situations, I still do suffer. Not as bad as I used to, but I still do suffer. And so what we can do about it? Well, one of the things we can do about it is, as I said, in the very situations we're in, to try and remember sooner that we've got our portion of responsibility, but also very much to take it into our formal practice, our formal meditation. Now, sometimes it's the case that uh, people will meditate uh, because they want to be happy. And I think this is fairly normal. You know, most of us are had enough unhappiness and the idea of being happy is very attractive and you hear meditation is going to make you happy. Oh, yes, please, I'll have some of that. And so we set out to meditate and, and you concentrate your attention, focus your attention on a meditation object with great determination and enthusiasm, that you, you know, going into something with hope and, and so on. And, and after a while, it works. And suddenly your mind opens up and, and all the problems fall away and there's this wonderful feeling of happiness of real joy and delight and it feels like a burden's fallen away from your shoulders and you're just breathing freely and your head is clear and bright and you can see things and, and it's just so wonderful and it's the joy and the pleasure that comes from having a peaceful mind. And then of course uh, you carry on, you realise it doesn't last uh, unless you're Sri Ramana Maharshi uh, or something like that uh, where it does seem to last but for the rest of us it doesn't last and uh, we get back into our everyday life and and all the problems of everyday life, the dealing with issues and personal issues, emotional, physical, relational, social, political, environmental issues, and we get unhappy. And then we run back to our meditation, we try to get happy again. And even that doesn't work. We try harder. Even that doesn't work. Go on a retreat. Maybe it works, but maybe it doesn't work also. So anyway, as far as the Buddhists are concerned, happiness is not the goal. Not that kind of happiness. Not the kind of happiness that comes from just getting a break from our problems. What uh, the Buddhist teaching points to is the happiness that is better called contentment. The contentment or well-being that comes with understanding. And so, so if we are really interested in coming to terms with frustration, our own and community, global frustration that we all experience, if we're really interested in coming to terms with it, <clears throat> what we need to do is let go of our desires to be happy. Not get rid of them, but because it's under, everybody wants to be happy. But to realize that, that the happiness that comes from getting what we want is not it. I mean, we've all got what we want so many times in life. But... You know, the kind of temporary happiness that comes from just gratification 
of desire is not really worth striving for. It's understandable, so we're not judging it. We just say, well, you know, is that really worth giving my life to, just getting another agreeable experience? Have we contemplated that? Well, sooner or later we come across a few, well, no, actually that's not it. That's not really worth it. And then, you know, contemplating the wisdom teachings and say, well, you know, with understanding, with clear seeing, with clear seeing, then there's a shift, a fundamental shift in our relationship to life. So that even wanting doesn't have to become a problem. Even frustration doesn't have to become a problem. Even sadness doesn't have to be a problem. Even disappointment doesn't have to be a problem. Because we're not becoming it. That's the point. And so this is, again, not just a philosophical position. This is an encouragement for us to contemplate, like in our formal meditation, when we have some suffering, have some frustration, have some disappointment, whatever it is. Maybe it's just like you've got some pain in your body. Say, I'm going to sit for meditation for 40 minutes. And you go to sit and then you start physical pain. And then what do you do with it? I want to get rid of it. And you spend all this time thinking about, shall I move, shall I not move? If I move, this will happen. And maybe, maybe it's my cartilage, maybe it's, maybe it's this, maybe I need an osteopath to realign my back. Thinking, 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 dreaming, 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 making up stories in the head. Anything but actually feeling the pain. Anything but actually going to the sensation and being with, really with, the raw experience of the pain. And, this is, if we see this happening, well, basically this is the story of our lives. That we, When we suffer, we're not generally really interested in the reality, in the actuality. We make up stories about where it came from or how to get rid of it, the past or the future. But if we understand this, then we, we, we can become interested in the, in the reality of this moment. Is it possible for me to really hold my attention on the raw sensation of pain, not in a, a stupid, willful way that risks damaging yourself, not at all, but just as an experiment. And this is really what it is. It's like meditation is like going into the laboratory. You know, it's going into the lab to do some, some experimentation on reality, <clears throat> my relationship with reality. Or going on a meditation retreat is like it's just going to the lab for a, a, a week-long you know, research project. You're going to research reality. See, what happens when I don't get what I want? Hmm, very interesting, very good question. From inside, what happens from the inside perspective? I know what happens from the outside, you know, I start to get restless and maybe start to say something, so I start doing things. No, no, get, what really is going on from an internal perspective? So if we do this in our formal meditation, then we discover there is something we can do about it. We don't have to go into storytelling. And we find that, that if we do it wisely and mindfully, we find strength in that. You know, to not just turn away from suffering. You know, the same if it's mental suffering, meditation, or emotional suffering, some pain, some disappointment. You come to set meditation and there's a feeling of disappointment. Something has happened. You lost somebody or had an unpleasant conversation with somebody. And there's this feeling of disappointment, pain, sadness is there. You can set a meditation, you can willfully concentrate on the meditation object and hope that it's going to disappear. Or you can go into storytelling, you can go into fantasizing about 
how wretched this person really is and, and, and they're just such an awful person and, and next time I see them I'm going to do this or maybe I should do that, maybe I should do this and blah, 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 blah in our heads. Or, or we can get interested in the reality. What is the reality of disappointment? What is, what happens, what happens to my heart, to my mind, to my body when disappointment goes? You really ask the questions to talk to ourselves like that. You know, sometimes people think meditation is just sitting there and concentrating on your meditation object as if you don't have a mind. I mean, our minds are made to use. You know, we can think. And thinking is allowed, you know. We're allowed to think. Now, some of us have suffered so much from thinking that we think that we should stop thinking. But that's, that's an unfortunate perspective on thinking. Thinking needs to be, needs to be understood and needs to be disciplined. But that doesn't mean to say we have to stop all thinking. So we can ask helpful, have helpful thoughts like, what is the reality of frustration? What goes on inside me when I don't get what I want? And if we do this, then we develop the skills of being more present at the time in a whole body-mind experience so that we, the energy doesn't come up and go out through our mouth or go up into our head and make stories. Somebody calls you something, you can be there with it. And who knows, maybe you just turn and you look at them and maybe they just get it right back, what they just gave you. They get right back, maybe for the first time. You didn't hit them, they hit themselves because they just sent out something really nasty. Now, you can't force it to back to them, but you can maybe, if you're still and clear and settled here, maybe you can just be a mirror and it goes right back to them. And they get it. And that's the best teaching. That's much better than anything else. Like the story that you're probably familiar with when when there was that disciple of the Buddha, a very devoted woman used to come and see him and listen to him, giving his teachings on a regular basis, to the point where her husband got really fed up with her. And not just fed up with her, but fed up with this guy who was, you know, obviously competing for her attention. Just happened to be the Buddha. And so uh, this chap went along to one of the uh, Dhamma talks that the Buddha was giving. And uh, as the story goes, barged in there and really started haranguing the Buddha. Probably didn't call him Hare Krishna, probably. <laughs> called him something else that was uh, insulting in India 2,500 years ago. And once he had let off a bit of steam, um, the Buddha, you know, replied and, and, uh, and he said, he said, tell me, Brahman, he's a Brahman, he says, tell me, he said, uh, do you ever have house guests come to stay with you? Said, of course we have house guests, of course. And the Buddha said, do you give them gifts? Do you give them presents? Which, of course, he said, yes, of course, that's what you do. If you're a good host, you give a little something for your guests to take away. That's a beautiful gesture, and certainly the culture of the time. And then the Buddha asked him, he said, and tell me, tell me, Brahman, he said, if your guests don't take away or don't accept your gift, who does it belong to? So it belongs to me, of course. Mm -hmm. The Buddha says, says, I don't accept your anger. I don't accept your anger. And I'm sure he didn't say it in an angry way. Because he clearly knew anger. He clearly knew desire. He clearly knew his own mind, his own passions to the degree whereby he wasn't intimidated by them. We still get intimidated by our passions. They flare up, and I feel uncomfortable. I don't like the situation. And unless I'm very well prepared and well trained and patient and interested, I send it out. 
either emotionally just send somebody these hate vibes or come out through my eyes and look at them or maybe through the mouth. Or, or if you're really ill-disciplined, you go and thump somebody. You know, become a football hooligan. So I think they should set up a training program for all football fans. They should all have to do a meditation we pass in our course before the police allow them out of the country. What do you think, John? you think it's a good idea? <laughs> Put all these football fans on a we pass in our course for a week. And if they can sit with their own minds for a week, well, then they can go to Germany and uh, cheer for our boys. <laughs> so anyway, I think that's enough for this evening. And thank you very much for your attention.